Welcome to the StoryCraft Cafe. Come in, grab a cup of your favorite beverage, and get ready to join the storytelling conversation. StoryCraft Cafe is brought to you by Dabble, the ultimate cloud-based fiction writing software. Here we're going to bring together storytellers from all walks to encourage and empower you to craft your best story. Hey y'all, and welcome back to the podcast. My name is Grace, and I am the community manager here at the StoryCraft Cafe. As we head into July and August, we are diving headfirst into our indie summer series with author talks and lectures from successful indie authors across genres. We are also continuing with our four weekly word sprints and are expanding our revamped writing group program. Also, don't forget, applications for our accountability group, the 500 Club, are open. You can sign up for July membership through July 15th, and after that, your application will count towards August membership. I know I'm throwing a lot at you here, but I do hope that you will come to check out our summer offerings and explore the conversations and resources that the cafe has to offer. You can find us online at storycraft.cafe. That's S-T-O-R-Y-C-R-A-F-T dot C-A-F-E. I can't wait to see you there. On today's episode of the Storycraft Cafe, we have a panel discussion with Rhett Bruno, Jamie Castle, and voice actor Roger Clark. They join us in the cafe to talk about audiobooks and If you're an indie author especially, audiobooks are the largest growth market in publishing right now. This is something that you need to be dialed into because you could be leaving money on the table and readers unreached if you're not into audiobooks. So uh, we have a great panel discussion from Roger, Rhett, and Jamie today. Before we get over to our great panel discussion, though, let's hear from Delia Owens talk about long before she wrote Where the Crawdads Sing, long before it had a quarter of a million reviews on Amazon, and before this book swept the country by storm, how she just wanted to create characters that resonated with people. And I think you can learn a lot from Delia's exploration of character and what makes a character stick out to people and really resonate with them. Let's hear from Delia and then on to our panel discussion. Thanks for joining us today. Yes, it really is in a sense my life except for the mystery because I did live out in the, uh, I wasn't ever abandoned, but I did live in the wilderness most of my life. And even where I live today, I see people once a week. And so um, I have lived that life. So yes, I'm Nature is my best friend, and uh, and, and it, I spend more time with nature than any person, and so I am, in a way, Kaya. But I also think that Kaya is in all, in all of us, because another part, a, a big part of Kaya, a big part of the story is the fact that we can all do so much more than we think we can. So many people think, they have a limit to what they can do. But when you find yourself in a situation, and people find this all the time, that they that they have some big problem in their life or something comes along they think they can't handle, we can all do so much more than we think. 
And this is the story of Kaya. Kaya has to do so much for herself, and she does it. She pulls it off. She is a little champion. She is not just this isolated little girl. She's witty. She's gritty. She gets it done. And I'm I'm so proud of her. And I think she becomes a a person that people can cheer on. And um and 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 I I think that she is part of all of us. Thanks for joining us today in the Storycraft Cafe. We have an amazing show for you today. Uh, my friends Jamie Castle and Rhett Bruno join us today. Jamie, you might know as Steve Bowyer. Um you know, pen names um, and the inimitable Roger Clark, who narrates uh, Jamie and Rhett's new book, Cold as Hell, the Black Badge series, book one. Uh, we're here to talk all about audiobooks and uh, that end of publishing. And I think we're going to have a, a fantastic conversation today. So welcome, Jamie, Rhett and Roger. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Yeah. So. Uh, let, let's get started with a uh, with a fun question. Um, Jamie, we'll start with you since in our little square format, you're at the you're next to me here. Um, what is a piece of writing advice that someone uh, has given you that has stuck with you? Maybe it's good advice. Maybe it's horrifically bad. Uh, something that just sticks out in your mind that that someone has given you that that you look back on frequently. I think. Um I think you and I have talked about this one before, and I feel like I could I could give you like a hundred examples of <laughs> really bad advice that I've gotten over the years. Um, it changes with the tides, right? Yeah. Like, there used to be the advice, write a short book. Then there was the advice, write a long book. Then there was take a long book and make it into three short books. And it was like, yeah. it was like constant. Nobody knew what you were supposed to do to do the job. But I think, I think one of the worst pieces of advice that I've ever received as a writer was don't worry about your first draft, just vomit it out. And <laughs> although that might work for some people, what that does for most people is discourages them when they go back and look over it and realize what a piece of crap they just wrote. <laughs> and it's like impossible to fix because you didn't have a, a, a plan or anything in mind. And, and I did that for a while. I did that for 20 years when I was trying to finish my first book. And ultimately, I, I finished my first book because I learned that you can't just vomit out words because then you end up with vomit on paper. Well, and I remember 10 or 12 years ago when when the indie revolution was really kicking up and people were, were talking about just write a book and get it out as fast as you can and then publish it. And then, you know, stuff like that gets over to, to someone like Roger and he's like, who wrote this piece of crap? This is, <laughs> this is atrocious. <laughs> what about you, Red? Is there a piece of advice that sticks out to you? Good, bad, or, or both? Um, trying to, I, I think, think the biggest thing is always like long series sell and people take that the wrong way. Yeah. Like long series are great when they're already selling, but mm. as Ethan books, I can't tell you how many people sent a submission. Like I have a 12 book arc plan. I'm like, all right, but <laughs> what if the first three don't sell? Yeah. And people wind up writing these like 12 book epics that are just not even being read by anybody past, past book one. 
Um, so that's something we always turn that advice around, like do three books and leave an opening <laughs> to, yeah. to, to do more, but like you need ending points. Otherwise you get stuck writing forever for nobody. Right. Um, and I also add Rhett that when you say leave an opening, they take that as don't finish the trilogy. Yeah. yeah no, like, so then we get to book three and they're like, okay, now can we do book four? Cause the story doesn't end. And you're like, <laughs> oh, wait, what? And then we're like, why didn't our editors tell us that the story didn't end? Yeah. <laughs> because they don't know, right? Like they might, they're like, oh, I guess there'll be a book four, but like, mm. they don't know the details of the contract. So it's, sometimes you just really have to be honest and talk with the authors and be like, look, like it needs to end. Keep a subplot open or have an idea for how you could bring it back. But right. Like if you don't leave yourself out points, you're either going to piss off what few readers are there or exhaust yourself writing something for nobody. I got eight more books. Eight more books. <laughs> <laughs> have, have you ever heard uh, Jim Butcher talk about uh, that conversation he had with a writing teacher where he was, you know, telling her these ideas and she said, okay, now go, go write an outline. And he comes back with a 25 book outline. And she was like, no, I just, I just meant this book just just get to an, <laughs> to an end point here you know yeah i, I feel that yeah jim, um, jim got lucky right i mean yeah yeah great, i mean it worked out for him books are amazing know. but yeah. like yeah there are a lot of books that don't sell no, and he was lucky enough to, be able to put out 17.5 of them already <laughs> yeah yeah i i think he's i think he's gonna be okay uh Roger, what about you? Has there been anyone uh, that has offered advice to you in in the work that you do in in acting, voice acting, narrating um, that that has that's been really good or really bad? Uh, well, you know, really good advice uh, in my field is not to take things personally, even when it's personal. You know, mm. uh, and if you if you sling enough, shall we say, feces to the wall, something will eventually. <laughs> Thick. Uh, I always believe that work begets work, and I think that's true for a lot of artists, yeah. at least ones that are easy enough to work with. Anyway, <laughs> yeah, work begets work is is uh, yeah that that en enough is not given to you know we we like to think of writing and and uh, as this sort of ethereal thing that the the angels come down and, and bless you with an idea. And sometimes that happens. And, and sometimes you just have to put your butt in the chair and, and get to work every day. And, and yeah, I, I saw a great quote from Taika Waititi recently. And he said, you know, sometimes it's just sitting in front of a computer screen and just staring at it for a couple of hours. Right. That's, That's right. Still it's writing. Still writing. It's yeah. still <laughs> writing. It's still valid, you know, and we've, and all writers go through that, you know? Yeah. yeah. I told my wife recently that, uh, you know, she said something like, cause I'm, I'm finishing up like my 21st book in like the last three or four years. And she's like, I don't understand how you keep writing things. And of course I have co-writers. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of things that are, you know, mixed into that. But I'm like, sometimes my muse is the mortgage payment. <laughs> like 100 percent. i don't need a muse i need to know that i can pay bills and right. you just do the job yeah so the muse is a dirty capitalist yes yeah, yeah. my <laughs> kids need to eat food imagine yeah. that yeah. great artistic incentive yeah, yeah. Roger, there there are probably uh, a number of people listening that recognize your voice, uh, but maybe don't recognize Roger Clark as being attached to that. Um, 
you are uh, you have been thrust uh, into pop culture over the last several years from this this video game uh, that you uh, characterized the the main character for. How, how did you get involved with the Red Dead Redemption uh, series? Well, I I uh, I had been I worked in gaming for maybe my first gaming job was maybe about 16, 17 years ago. Okay. Um, and I trained in Britain and I was pretty good at uh, regional accents. So, you know, my, I started out in theater, but it quickly came into voice work uh, because I, I had a bit of a command over some dialects and that led to, to voice acting and video games and then eventually performance capture too. And I auditioned. I auditioned like uh, any other job. Of course, the video game industry is so secretive. I didn't know what I was auditioning for. They're all called Untitled Video Game Project when you walk into the door. <laughs> all I know is that they wanted me to wear cowboy boots and that they wanted some sort of like a West Texan accent. So uh, I, I really enjoyed performance capture. I think it's a fascinating medium, that and voice acting. So I, was, I, I, I ran into the place. And uh, one thing led to another, and uh, eventually I found out that uh, I was going to be the protagonist of Red Dead Redemption 2. And uh, I worked on that five years. Wow. wow. That project took. And it was a we know we waited for it. It was Gee a gift. Whiz. Gee it was whiz. The, the longest contract I've ever had, and it was a real joy. Real so, joy working with the, all the people of Rockstar Games. And I've been able to supplement that with, with narrating audiobooks as well. I've been doing audiobooks since I was a child. My dad used to do newspaper for the blind. We would record it onto six cassettes at a time. We would do the Star Ledger from New Jersey. I'd help him cut out the little articles and whatnot. And that then when we so moved cool. to Ireland when I was a kid, uh, he brought it with him and he started it up with the local newspaper there, the Sligo Champion. Wow. So I've been doing it for a long time. I, I love it. I love it. I love it very much. You mentioned um, that the Red Dead Redemption role um, that you had was was motion capture. And I think a lot of people assume because they don't know any different that that the voices they hear in video games come from a guy standing in a booth and you just have pages and pages of dialogue that you're going to read that will be plugged into the game depending on what choices that you that you make and that that maybe you don't have any idea what the story is um you're just reading different pieces of dialogue that may or may not pop up in the game but that's not exactly how that works is it a lot of the industry is still voice acting and i don't know and i don't think it's ever going to go away but a great majority of it now is performance capture and performance capture really isn't that dissimilar to film or tv the only difference being is uh, we would work on sets and we would have, but we wouldn't have costumes. We would be wearing spandex with shiny balls on it. <laughs> so and, just uh, just like red on a on a random Thursday, exactly. <laughs> shiny balls, exactly. yeah, <laughs> spandex. But yeah. it's and, and then one of the other differences too is that you know the camera can be anywhere and uh, and in, indeed you can change you can change where the camera is in post whilst you're editing. It's an amazing medium that grants you, a, as the performer, a lot of freedoms. And it grants the filmmaker and the and the storyteller a lot of freedom, too. Yeah, And, of course, yeah, everybody says voice acting, because that is what it used to be. And it used to yeah. be 100% that. But now it's it's kind of 50. It, it depends from studio to studio. But 
performance capture is a huge part of gaming now. And we're, and it's a huge part of cinema, too. I mean, we're going to see Avatar 2 when it comes out later this year. That's the exact same way I worked on Red Dead 2. Wow. Wow. So, Jamie and Rhett, um, the Black Badge series. Uh, Jamie, you and I have had numerous conversations about our shared love of the Dresden Files. And, and we mentioned Jim Butcher earlier. And, you know, that's a series that I have absolutely loved for years and years. And I know you have too. Um, how did, how did this come about this, this project, you know, when it has a bit of a Dresden files feel to it in that there's uh, earthbound heroes with connections to, to other things, kind of the ethereal. Um, but it's uh, it very quickly establishes itself as it's, it's very own, property that that's not just a Dresden files ripoff um, with a cowboy. It's it, that's not it. it. It, it has a feel of that, but that's not it. Um, where did, where did this idea come from? Well, James and Harry are very different people. Very, very different people. Um, I'm on my third or fourth listen through of the Dresden files right now. I'm on book 12 changes. And um, I remember I was listening to the Dresden files while um I had lost my job. Things had been chaos in my life. Yeah. I'd been listening to the Dresden Files, and uh, I'm in my my hot ass garage in Texas writing because that's where I had to set up my office because I have kids. And so, like, I'm in my office, and this this character uh, sort of just kept talking to me. James Crowley kept talking to me. I didn't know his name yet. As a matter of fact, James Crowley is um, is a highway sign here in Texas. There's James Avenue and Crowley Road. And I kept driving by it, seeing James Crowley, James Crowley. I'm like, that's his name. Um, and I just wrote, I wrote nonsense. I wrote 10,000 words of nonsense in a day. It was just James Crowley walking into this town called Dead Acre. And I had this in my head, this sort of background character where he was the angel of death reincarnated. And, um, you know, I went to Rhett. And, of course, we have uh, Athon published one of the most successful weird westerns of all time, a book called Make Me No Grave by Haley Stone, which was an amazing, amazing book. Phenomenal uh, book. And I had just finished editing that. Um, so anyway, I'm writing this character and I went to Rhett and I'm like, Hey, I've got this idea. And he's like, it's a weird Western. What do you want to do with it? Come on. I mean, just, just write it, just have fun with it. So I wrote some stuff. And then, um, at some point audible originals messaged us, we had done something with them previously. And they said, Hey, do you have any short fiction that you'd like to put on our platform? They were just starting the plus platform. So nice. It was like, like, we, we were secretly told about it and they wanted us to see if we had anything short to try on it. So Dead Acre was like nothing at the time. It was 10,000 nonsensical words. There was no story. There was no plot. And um, it was just, it. and Rhett read it and he's like, listen, this character is great. The voice is great. The sort of the Western cliche, if we could say it, because like mm -hmm. if you've read Dead Acre or Cold as Hell, it's, it's Western. It's cliche Western done with a spin. And sometimes we get reviews that are like, it was very cliche. Well, no, no shit. That was the purpose. Like we right. want to give people who love Westerns what they love. And, and so Rhett said, okay, but there's no story. So we messaged uh, Audible Originals back. We gave them maybe like 5,000 words that Rhett and I had crafted. I so. And they said, yeah, we love it. Let's, let's finish it. So then Rhett and I powwowed. I, I don't think we're allowed to say powwowed anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, we, we were going to do what, like a 10,000 word that they've said. Yeah. Anything between like 10,000 and 20 <laughs> words. 
And as we planned it out, it became 30,000 words, which is like really long for a novella. Um, but, you know, they didn't care. They just weren't going to pay us more than, but we didn't care because we wanted to make it something cool. Um, so that was how we started building out the lore, how the black badges work, the angels and all those different relationships. Um, and the main thing we set out to was not just to do a weird Western where it's like, it's a Western and there's some magic, right? Like we wanted the magic to be integral to, to this world. Yeah. A big part of it instead of just some side thing that makes it not fully a Western. Yeah. Can, can we take a sidebar for just a second? Yeah. We, you talked about cliches. What's the difference in a cliche and um, the idea of writing to market or writing what you are or just understanding what your audience is looking for? Because, you know, one, one thing we know in, in indie publishing now or, or small press publishing, whatever, is that you need to identify your market and write what you know that market will buy. Because if you're writing things that, that you think are cool, but there's no audience out there for it, you can be an artist all day long. But if no one wants to buy it, then then this is just a passion project for you. Um, how do you identify cliches? Or, or and maybe it's just a, 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 a vernacular dispute. Trope, you know? trope could be the word. Trope, yeah. thank you. I couldn't grab yeah, I mean, the word it, trope for some reason. I don't think there is a market for, for this. Like That's why when we said at the start, like, oh, let's do a weird Western. I was like, all right, let's do something short and, and see what happens. Like We didn't expect Den Acre to explode like it did because there's no market to write for, right? Like our books, Cold as Hell has been out for a little over a month and is probably already one of the most successful weird Westerns ever because there's like five that anyone yeah. can find on Amazon at any time. So I think the tropes were more like classic Western movies that uh, even a, a lot of stuff out at, of at Red Redemption, I mean, that those games hit all the tropes too because there's yeah. stuff that a Western needs to have. Um, but we wanted those things to also involve magic and and, and be a, a little bit different, but be something that Western lovers could appreciate too. Yeah. Well, I always well, say that a cliche is a cliche on purpose, right? Like, yeah. Like, well, everyone it, knows it, the cliches. Yeah, man. Stay and every every yeah. book has them. Um, yeah. And like, no reader ever says what the cliche that they thought was a cliche is. It's just right. A word that gets thrown out in reviews a lot for everything. Well, yeah. just to sidle back into how Roger came into this, because I think that's probably what most people who are are joining us today want to know, right? Because Roger, I could listen to Roger. I do listen to Roger. I've, I've listened to my own books 30 times just to hear Roger's voice. My son makes us listen to Dead Acre and Cold as Hell every single night before bed. Um, he's eight years old, so judge me later. Uh, but <laughs> It's not appropriate. But, that's know, but, but I wrote it. So if I wrote it, my rule is if I wrote it, my son can listen to it. If I don't want my son to listen to it, then I better write things that I want him to listen to. Um, yeah. But, you know, as we finished Dead Acre, we were having the discussion. Rhett and I are really, really big audio guys. We're bigger in audio than we are on ebook. And I think that's because we write for audio. We know what audio listeners want because I listen to audio incessantly. Yeah. And so um, when we finished it, we actually didn't know Roger was going to narrate Dead Acre. Um, 
we actually did not know that Roger did voice acting. We just knew him from Red Dead Redemption. And we had, I mean, I am, I know Red is too. We are giant Red Dead Redemption fans. I mm -hmm. waited for Red Dead 2 for 12 years, like everyone else, or however long it was. And then I, I didn't it was see, that long. <laughs> I think it was that long. Um, I think it was 12 years, uh, 2008 to 2020 or something like that. Um, and then we had Undead in between, but that didn't satisfy. Um, as a matter of fact, like that's, People always say this is as if Arthur Morgan came back to life. Spoiler. Um, so as, as we were talking afterwards, we're like, okay, who should narrate this? And of course my first thought was how about James Marsters? Cause he's Dresden, right? And <laughs> he hasn't done anything other than that. So I said, I was on the phone. I said to Rhett, um, I wish Arthur Morgan narrated books and I hear, keyboard clacking in the background. It's like, he does. Roger He's done audio. So we texted or messaged um, Steve Feldberg at Audio Original said, can we get Roger Clark? And he back and us perfect. Let's do it. And I think maybe six wow. hours later, we had confirmation that, that Roger would do it. So when we wrote Cold as Hell, we knew Roger Clark. As a matter of fact, the, the, the both of us, when we did our read through of the book, we read it in Roger's voice. <laughs> An impression of, <laughs> of how it sounds. It I'll, has to, I'll say I got damn close, but I'll leave that for... Because it has to fit like that Western style of talking. He's got it. Writing. Yeah. Roger, you have... Certainly, you certainly hit, you hit it on the nail on the head. It's excellent. I, it just jumped out at me. And it's right. You know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of books that are perfect for audio and there's a lot of great books out there that not don't necessarily work well in audio, you know, and but the way that you fellas write dialogue and the way that the character, it just really does jump off from the page. And, and it was a joy to work on, an absolute joy to work on. Yeah. So, so let me ask this. You said you write specifically for audio. And, and, uh, and, and I know, you know, what the Athon business model is a lot of times is, you know, uh, Audible first or Audible originals and, and ebook is a, is a, uh, uh, it works in conjunction with that, but you're focused on, on audio primarily. Um, what, what does it mean to write for audio? What, what, when you are writing, what things are going through your mind that say this will, this will work better spoken aloud rather than the, the, you know, person creating the character in their head. What, what, what does it mean to write for audio? Well, Rhett and I specifically write to audio. We don't encourage our our, our authors in, in Athon to do that, but Rhett and I have established an audio career. You know, we started with Luke Daniels. We knew Luke Daniels was going to read the Very Goddess Saga, so we knew how he was going to perform it. Ray Porter, et cetera. We knew yeah. the narrators and how they were going to do it. Roger probably was the easiest because Roger has such a um, distinct – way of delivering lines writing for audio for me meant that um, as a matter of fact, you can look at our ratings on ebook versus our ratings on audio. And you can tell that ebook fans don't get everything that the audio readers get. Like when, when it's a I different experience, it's a different experience when I write. And when I'm, I'm just talking for me, but I think Rhett agrees with this and I'll shut up because I could talk forever. Um, when I write a line, a dialogue line, I know that Roger's going to get the context because he's an intelligent person who understands the context of a line. So I don't need to have prose after that line to explain how that line was spoken. 
Right. So when you read it in audio, sometimes, you know, you'll, or when you read it in ebook, sometimes the line will be a line that's said with surprise or with vehemence or with this or with that. And a typical ebook would say he said such and such vehemently, or he said such and such pointing a finger, but like Roger's going to put that into the performance. Right. So you step back from prose a little bit and you let the dialogue do the talking. And well, you know, I never realized you trusted me that much. Oh, it's an honor. <laughs> <laughs> so well, that, honestly, that's why it helps so much to know how someone sounds, right? Because there are also narrators who, like you perform, there are some narrators who are great that just read like a Jefferson Mays, what was his name? Who did my, Jefferson the, cir- the circuit. Like, yeah. When we know who we're writing for, that's what, what really helps. Like if we're writing a book specifically for R.C. Bray or something, uh, when you don't, that it's kind of hard because you don't know if you're going to get a narrator who's super into voices and performance or someone who just does an amazing read through. Um, right. But I, I also think that me and see our natural writing style is and proven by the reviews and everything is always more of a fit for audio. Um, we're just very character focused, which I think helps audio, right? Cause you're only, you're hearing the character and that's, that's something for me that makes it more written for audio, especially like first person. It's like yeah. someone telling you a story. So, right. Well, even so the right. way you guys write is so economical too, because it's just packed with quality and, 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 and content and the dialogue, it just really jumps off at the page at you. The characterizations are established so quickly. Uh, that's what impressed me particularly is how quickly you can just understand who these people are. And uh, in what we've said, like it's a very established genre, the Western, but you also have man- you put a little spin on it that is so interesting and engaging and something like we said, he's never seen before. Yeah, it's, it's a real joy. It was a real joy to work on. Roger, what what is uh, your process like when you when you sign on to a new project, maybe with with people that you don't know, with with authors that you don't know? Um, what is your process like from receiving that manuscript to uh, you know getting familiar with the story, identifying the characters? Like, can, can you just kind of walk us through how you um, kind of make out a game plan for how you're going to narrate this book? Sure. So I usually read it once or twice before I record. And the first time I'm really looking for words that I just don't know the pronunciation of. (laughs) Uh, And then I'm, and then at the same time, then I'll be looking at characters and in my head, I'll be coming up with, I'll be taking a note of what defines these specific characters and, and trying to come up with a voice that would suit that. Um, and then I, I, I often, I, I'm very grateful when I can speak to the authors about it because nobody knows the content better than them. And, well, uh, is that, is that ever an issue? Are there authors that, that don't want to speak to you that, that I I've listened to audiobooks before and uh, where they mispronounce names and things and and things that it would take a simple Google search to, to understand or yeah. a conversation with the author, they would have cleared that right up. Uh, 
and most and of the time it's, it's atrocious. they're always available you know but sometimes just through time constraints or what have you sometimes yeah. they're not alive uh and then you're you're, mm-hmm. you're you're a bit more but the, the producer then would speak with you in that in those gotcha. instances but the author is almost always available you know because they understand especially these days how, how much of a cornerstone the audiobooks is in the entire right. industry so yeah, it, authors it, make yourselves available to your <laughs> audiobook narrators, please. You know, and it's, that's usually it's very rarely been a case for me, um, uh, and it's always great because you get a you, you can't get a better understanding of the content uh, than with speaking with the author. Uh, I often find, you know, and I should, probably shouldn't say this, but you know, sometimes the author is the best narrator because they know exactly they are they are so intimate with their own work. They know exactly how it should be delivered. Some authors not so much, but I find a lot of authors are excellent narrators because they're so familiar with their work. But uh, I've always I've always really really appreciated uh, the communication that I've had with authors, and you know, when you're working on something, and that's, you know, to know that. That Stephen Red and Jamie, beg your pardon, were always a, a quick, a quick email away, and they always had, they were always able to answer my questions. And but uh, the story, like you were saying, just that unique spin on what is the oldest genre in cinema, at least, and how everyone has has an, a deep understanding of what the Western is. Then to have something that gives it a little bit of a spin on it is was just such a joy to work with. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I got a funny, funny story. Another way about how audiobooks has changed the industry, and this might be going a little bit off topic, but romance novels. You know, before audiobooks, romance novels were always written from the female perspective. Right. And then audiobooks came about, and publishers started to soon realize women like to hear a man's voice. <laughs> so it changed the way romance novels are written. Uh, and what you have now is you'll have very often will have the male protagonist so that they can get a male narrator or you'll do a chapter each where you know, one chapter is the man and the other chapter is the woman and they'll have multicasts. Uh, audiobooks have revitalized so many aspects of, of, the, of the publishing and book industry. It's, it's kind of crazy when you think about it. I, I never thought of that, that the way that audiobook then affects the way new books are coming out. Um, that that's something to, to chew on, uh, for sure. Um, is, is it ever, um, jarring to you, Roger, um, to be so associated with a character and, and then, um, by extension, a genre, uh, as you have been with Arthur Morgan and, and the way that you are inhabiting so many people's minds with, with, with your unique voice? No, no. I mean, I, I, I've always tried to resist pigeonholes. You know, I find that, you know, the, the more you keep your options open, that the more diverse you can be, the more work becomes, the more diverse work becomes available to you. But I love Arthur and I, I love the fact that, uh, I've been able to reach out to so many people in such a large audience with one. I mean, that's what an artist's dream is, is to yeah. have your work enjoyed by as many people as possible. And, you know, Cold as Hell and, and Dead Acre is very much, I, I very much inhabit the same cadences and voice as, as Arthur Morgan. But a lot of my other work in audiobooks, I do, I, I do a lot of Irish stuff. I do, I do British stuff. Um, I really enjoy 
I enjoy Arthur, but I also enjoy doing other things very much as well. And I'm always <laughs> going to be grateful for for what Red Dead has done for me. <laughs> well, okay, let me. Uh, so we have a character in Cold as Hell named Irish. And she is a uh, she's a bodyguard of sorts for a historical figure that I will leave spoilers out on. Okay, we won't spoil it. Yeah, but but Irish exists solely because I knew uh, that Roger could do an Irish accent well, and <laughs> so I texted Rhett one day. I'm like, "Hey, we need to have a character that's Irish." And but then we accidentally made two Irish people. Yeah, <laughs> we made two Irishes, remember, and then we change we change one of them to be something else. Who was the first? Uh, Josh Hayes. Oh, Picklefinger. Picklefinger was originally an Irish. <laughs> yeah, yeah oh, and, really? and, oh, I didn't know that. And then I we were both we were like, "Wait, the person that we don't want to spoil." Okay, right, right, right. We were both like, "Wait, like he hasn't he doesn't meet that many people in this book, and we're gonna have two of them in the Wild West be Irish? <laughs> Maybe." <laughs> we I mean, there were a lot of Irish folks. I know it just. But you're right. No, I'm. You're, yeah, I forgot about that. <laughs> it, it was just funny. That's yeah. hilarious. So, Jamie, you you come up with the concept and you write the ten thousand nonsensical words as you your words, not mine. Yeah. Um, where you're just feeling out the character, uh, feeling out the setting, just kind of letting the words uh, inform how you're thinking about the story. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I would say. Um, for sake of, you know, Rhett, I want everyone to realize that Rhett had everything to do with James Crowley as well, because James Crowley was a different character before I sort of brought him to Rhett. Um, well, that was that's where I was going. With yeah, for sure. Um, yeah. Ahead, I'll let you continue then. No, I was, I was just going to say that um, how like Rhett, w- when do you come in to the story? And and, you know, did you have a clear vision for what Jamie was was working on and, and, and where he was, uh, you know, trying to establish this character and what, where, what is your role at that point? Yeah. So, I mean, we've been working together for so long. I knew yeah. how he works, which sometimes he just needs to write an idea, get it out of his head and, and move on. And he shows yeah. me all of them. And sometimes I'm like, yeah, like, what are we going to do with this? Um, but this one, like the first page, you could just feel the voice. I was right. like, this, I mean, this sounds great. We just would need to figure out where it goes. Um, and again, yeah. like he said, at, at the start, it was very, very biblical that he was an angel and everything. Um, and we sort of paired that all back to make him less powerful. We wanted to, uh, someone who doesn't have all the answers and all the powers and everything we would, really wanted it to be a more human story, even though he's undead. Um, but that was sort of what I did. And it came in as we took basically like out of the 10,000 words, I just needed to hear the voice in the first page, um, which the first page or so was basically telling the story of how he died. Um, yeah. And that was great. And that's what we kept and reworked that into everything else. Basically, that first scene in Dead Acre is only a page or so, right? See if maybe a couple pages, but that's the only thing I think we really kept, which of course was hard to see eighty five hundred words or nine, you know, seven, whatever it was, just thrown away. I mean, I think we, I think he met Phelps. I think there was that intro where they're in the saloon, but like it all, it all changed. It just, it all changed. Yeah, I mean, this is our style is 
those 10,000 words, I work through them and I try to turn them into something. And then we have like an outline of where we want it to go and we realize it's not working. We both get frustrated and we're like, let's just, <laughs> let's just actually start from the beginning instead of trying to massage something that doesn't work anymore. How, um, how long have you guys been working together? Um, like Four years, five years? Five years, I think. Five years. Wow. Yeah, so wow. we've, we had done one standalone book and a six book epic fantasy series together, um, which again, this, this happened even in the epic fantasy series, like Steve might invent a new character and then we have to like, so it's something we've done a lot of just taking a character and, and building their role and background and stuff. So that's where I talk with this. So this was the first time we did first person, which uh -huh. again, it's actually harder. I think, or it takes longer for two people to write first person than it would for someone to write it alone because we basically have to both adopt the same voice. And I would imagine that you both need to have an intimate agreement as to who this person is to be able to, to mutually know and write about f for the same person in the first. I, I didn't really, I never appreciated that. Yeah, it takes a lot. I would imagine it would take a huge amount of teamwork and, un and understanding to, to both agree who, who James Crowley actually is. Yeah, it takes a lot of writing and rewriting or, or revising compared to Buried Goddess Saga, which was third person. We each sort of took a lead on a specific, char specific characters. Um, so like you could tell, I think it makes it great because every voice for every character is actually different. You right. know, it's not just an author trying to give characters different voices because it's different authors. They, they really do have them. But yeah, for this, it was about bringing everything together. So it does take longer, I think, than if just one of us wrote it along, alone. But it makes for like a really surprising story because we both are kind of throwing ideas into it as it goes. Well, I think we're both trying to impress each other. <laughs> I think that's part of it too. Never discount that. You have an immediate audience, right? Like I'll write a chapter and I will know that Rhett's going to read this. And so my goal is to insert things that make him go, that was good. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And if it's a comedy, like we're, we're working on like a fantasy comedy book. And there was the one line about <laughs> the bone that just made me crack up. And so when we're doing that, like there was a funny character in the fantasy series um, it helps with jokes too. Like if they're landing, if a twist surprises, like we, like I or him might've killed off somebody in the fantasy series where there were so many characters and then it, it just happens, right? The other person doesn't expect it until they see those words. Um, so it does make for fun back and forth. When um, Rhett, uh, you are more of an outliner uh, if if I remember your writing process, not know, really more than, you know, more than Steve. Yeah. Well, I was, <laughs> Steve is Steve and I have had a number of conversations about his onion method of of writing. And you write something, and then you go back and add more layer and depth, and then go back and add more layer and depth. How does that work when you're co-writing? Um, what is your your process for establishing? Uh, you know, each writer's territory, if you will, and or it, is everything shared? And, and I know in Buried Goddess, you, where you could take different viewpoint characters, that that is a, a clear delineation of who's 
is whose. Um, but what do you do when when you've got a first person character and this is one unified story? What what does that feel like to to co author? Chaos. <laughs> Honestly, like I th- our method for each chapter might be different as we go. Uh, just because first, like again, most co authorships, especially in first person, is probably one person writes a really really rough draft. Then the other person goes through it based off of an outline and it's like sort of a full back and forth, but we do it like chapter by chapter together. Um, so in first person, it really, like, I don't think there's a method that we could teach anyone for these <laughs> books. It's very, very weird. I wrote um, about 4,000 words of this scene where, uh, where Roger gets to encounter this succubus at a brothel and it's packed full of, uh, I think I think what I take most joy in in this series is the one-liners that I know Roger's going to get to say uh, or, or have to say. They're pretty um, good. <laughs> and so I've got this 4,000 words that's just jam-packed with like Western fantasy. Yes, amazing, right? And then I show him and he's like, cool, that's not that's not going in the book. <laughs> well, no, we're going to we, – we are going to use it, but in a different area. Like yeah. we're going to give it a, a reason in the story. But that's what always Steve will write all these one-liners and we both have like notepads of one-liners and then somehow we'll work them into the, into the book. That's why like we don't throw anything out. Um, but yeah, it definitely, it is a longer, harder process with first person. It's not something that most people probably do because it just, it takes constant back and forth and messaging and, and calls and stuff because you can't really go off the rails it's just one one guy compared to third person, which is what I would imagine most like equal parts co-authorships are doing. Um, but again, it's it's rare that two people are actually writing each thing together. Most co-authorships are going to have someone taking a lead on, on rough draft or based off of an outline and, and kind of a back and forth in that sense. Brent and I wrote a short book together. I don't even know if it's available anymore. It was called... Um, two authors, one book, co-writing murder free. And I have the audiobook. The the whole like point of that book was we I mean we have a lot of co-authors in with Athon. And uh generally those relationships don't end well. Um mm. I don't, you know, somehow Rhett and I have made it through. I think I think a lot of that is that I respect the fact that Rhett knows how to store, tell a story way better than me. So when he tells me something story wise doesn't work, I generally don't argue. Um, you know, he's, he's always the one that dead acre became the story was the story because of red cold as hell. Red didn't necessarily outline it strongly, but he outlined it enough for me to know what I'm supposed to be writing. Otherwise Roger would have been just running all over fake taxes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, we never uh, even outlined, like I do maybe a page of notes in a Gmail draft or something. We're not huge outliners. I'm not when I write on my own either even the buried goddess saga which seems really really well planned out is mostly just us remembering stuff from talking on calls like it, we're not <laughs> big outliners we just sort of know the ending we want to get to yeah uh, Rhett, you are you, the books that you author uh, by yourself just as retsy bruno uh, tend to be kind of adventure based sci-fi um you know a more uh, more futuristic sci-fi. What, what is it like when when Jamie comes to you 
with this weird fantasy, um, you know, ideas. What what is it like for a sci-fi writer to to you know go to a different world and and to start thinking, you know, to completely switch gears to to the kinds of stories that that you by yourself would come up with. Well, at the time, I hadn't written sci-fi in a while because we, I mean, we wrote six fantasy book, epic fantasy books in a yeah. row that were really long, like up to 200,000 word books. Um, and then I wrote The Roach, which isn't even science fiction or fantasy at all. Um, so it wasn't really hard because first person to me, like you're writing the character. It doesn't really matter where they are. Um, you know, they, we could have written the same story with him in sci-fi would have been like Star Wars basically, but then there wouldn't be that actual real authentic Western and accent feel and all that. Uh, so my main thing was like, who are we writing this for? Because like publishers gave up on Blackstone is the one who signed this and we submitted cold as hell out everywhere based off of the success of, of dead acre and Blackstone's the only one that offered besides audio only places but everyone was like, we love it. We don't know how to market this mm. Bye. And then that has become the issue with weird Westerners. People just won't do it. So we were down to either doing it ourselves or working with Blackstone and they made an amazing pitch and offer and have been great to work with. So it would have been, you know, and with them, since we had more of a personal connection with them, like we were able to help out a lot and use a lot of the things we know from Athon as well. But yeah, even for our Make Me No Grave by Haley Stone, which was actually Athon's first book that we ever published. Um, no, the same thing happened to her. Every publisher was like, we love this, but it's weird Western, so we can't do it. Yeah. Um, because they're all, ba I mean, it's PL statements and they need to look at comps and see what they did. And outside of a few, outside of Joe Lansdale and like maybe, and Jonathan Mayberry, no one's really making a lot of money. And, in this space so yeah that was the main question was like who's this for let's write something short so that we don't get hooked into something where we're just writing for no reason yeah um roger i, I know that uh the internet has changed uh the publishing landscape for sure uh, especially with the advent of the kindle and i think with uh with everyone having smartphones uh, now, I think that's probably the biggest factor in the the growth of the audiobook industry, because we've got these devices with with tons of storage and we can download it. And, you know, we have earbuds that people walk around with and audiobooks are just extremely accessible. Um, I would think yeah, accessible. It's yeah. That, people commuting. It's it's right. Yeah. But I'll let you finish. No, I, I was I was thinking um that for for a person uh, like you, who is a is an actor, uh, and then you know a sometimes audiobook narrator, um, does the connectivity of the internet has that opened up uh, the things that you're able to do? Like, um, uh, do, do you have a home studio where you can record from and then you know send audio files to Audible and like how has that opened up possibilities for you? I started working uh, for Audible over a decade ago, uh, 
And I remember hopping on the train to Newark and heading over to their <laughs> office there. And uh, I would work with amazing engineers. But as I got a little bit more experienced, it did eventually evolve to my home studio, which was just in time for COVID. Uh, I was very grateful for that because, you know, I certainly wouldn't have, without that home studio, I certainly wouldn't have been carrying on working. But but yeah, I, I, I've been very, very fortunate in that, uh, you know, I've done a lot of stuff for Tantor, Audible, and now Blackstone and, you know, Penguin as well. And I, I love narrating audiobooks. It's really is one of a, a passion of mine. And I love the fact that so many wonderful authors trust me with their work to do it. I wanted to ask you guys something. I go going back to the, uh, the supernatural aspects of the Western and the way that you so geniusly put a little spin on it. But I've noticed that like a lot of the flashbacks, for example, in the Black Badge series, they don't have the supernatural aspects before James is uh, embraced in the afterlife. I noticed that, uh, did you guys specifically change the style uh, or, or just sim or, or mildly tweak it somehow? When you write about his, his flashbacks, it's, it reads very much like, uh, like the tr more traditional Western novel than, than when James is, you know, uh, obviously dealing with, with his angels and, and the afterlife. And I was wondering if there was any intentional way, did you change the, mildly tweak the style at all to suit that? I think just naturally you have to take out all of James's knowledge of what is to come. And so you're, you're pulling a, a giant sort of portion of this, per, this person's, you know, cause we've talked before on the phone, like this is a person to us. James is a, is a human being that uh, he's not just a character in a book. He just he comes alive for you. Uh, we took all that, like threw it away. Like he doesn't know that Shar exists. He doesn't know, he doesn't believe that heaven and hell exist, right? He's just an outlaw. The beauty with James was that, of course, he's the, he's the outlaw with a heart of gold. And although he's caught in the positions that he's in, uh, he often finds himself not okay with how Ace is handling them. Um, but he's, he's sort of becoming a hero, even in his flashbacks, um, you know, your performance, and I, I hesitate to say uh, Red Dead Redemption because the reality is it, it honestly is your performance in Red Dead 2 because to me, Red Dead 2 not just graphically exceeds the first one. It exceeds the first one in, in every possible way. Yeah. Um, and so much of that is you. Um, even things like the train robbery, you know, one of the best, one of my favorite things to do in Red Dead Redemption 2 is just ride up alongside a train with a horse, hop off and go to town. And so, you know, when Rhett and I were talking about tropes, right, he's like, well, we have to have a train robbery, right? And we actually <laughs> fought tooth and nail, uh, Rhett, if you remember, to figure out where this train robbery goes. We wanted it to be the opening. We wanted it to be the close. And neither of those two things work. And I think Rhett was the one that came up with the idea with the Vanderbilts, right? That was you. Yeah, I, we just entire thing. We just I, we were like, let's do another Ace flashback when you know, like because it'll it'll fit that moment. And again, I think a lot of the difference in style comes down to an editing thing, which is readers tend to complain about flashbacks. I don't know why, right? Like on TV shows, they're the bit like no one cares, and they're they're huge. Everyone uses them in books. It's just an old editing thing, like. No flashbacks, or if you have them, really short. So that's why the flashbacks are him doing stuff, dialogue, 
no expansion beyond that. Like they have, we keep them really simple um, to keep the word count low. So they move fast. So the momentum of the story doesn't go away. And the flashback has a specific thematic purpose. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. So that's probably the change in style. He, you know, you lose that waxing poetic Western thoughts and it's more quickly telling a story of what happened in his mind. So that probably an incidental reason for the change, but the lack of magic is, you know, we want to make sure people realize like normal people aren't part of this world, right? Even if the monsters they might meet in the wild, they kill them. That's why they become legends. Um, or they come back and talk about them and they sound crazy, right? Like, so normal people aren't involved in this side of the world that he's seeing. So in his flashbacks, he can't know or, or, or see any of that stuff either. Red, I want to ask you something. When you talked about uh, flashbacks and how editors would be no flashbacks, um, are there rules rules uh, in uh, in writing that that need to be broken sometimes, or maybe there's 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 just an opportune time for them to be broken, or uh, you know, it's kind of like Stephen King's book on writing. He says never use adverbs, and then you know, then you've got Neil Gaiman, who, you know, just feels like he's just, you know, scattering seed with adverbs sometimes, you know, um, like, are there hard and fast rules? Um, and, and if those are hard and fast rules, how do you know when is the proper time to use them or to break those rules? Um, I mean, I think there's hard and fast rules as far as like, it should look like a book, right? Well, yeah, well we get submissions yeah. sometimes that like, don't write a paragraph that's an entire page long because right. that just hurts your eyes and yeah. like dialogue needs to work correctly and stuff. But beyond that, I think people get a little too hung up on it. And that's likely because the industry used to be controlled by honestly, like it was a few editors, right? Even now every publisher has like 30 imprints. There's so many editors who have different opinions on right. how things need to be. And what we've started to realize with Athon is the rules are different for every subgenre and every genre of what's acceptable, right? Like an info dump, every editor is like, don't do an info dump. We're like, well, how well, like people can't be lost in the science fiction book or this fantasy book. So in those genres, info dumps actually wind up being okay. Um, if, if you're writing for audio, things are a little different too. I mean, my most successful book ever is Titanborn, which was with Random House. And I built the story around flashbacks and there, there were like three or four flashbacks in it and originally there was only one and the editor actually uh encouraged me to add two more that would create sort of a, a three-part arc to the flashbacks that's informing the present and i think a lot of that is again my i i watch tv and movies more than i read and i write in a style that is very tv and movie yeah. Where flashbacks are acceptable. Um, and I think where flashbacks got a bad rap was sort of just using them as a crutch yeah. to explain a character and not having it really have any relevance to the story or anything where when I do a flashback or means Steve do one, like that flashback is coming at a point where that character would be thinking about that exact moment. And that moment is affecting something that's happening in, in that present. Like it's, it's a purpose. It's not just 
a way to boost word count or a way to fill in information on, on, on a character. Um, so yeah, I mean, the rules exist for editors to have a way to structure a book, but now yeah. as there's so many different ways to read, there's so many different rules that are different for every format um, that I think you just need to be true to the voice of the book and the tone of the book, not write a serious book. And then all of a sudden halfway through there's like becomes a comedy and then goes back. Right. You'll see the, that in movies, like some of the Marvel movies nail the comedy aspect. Yeah. Some it turns it into a joke and a lot of people wind up complaining. Um, so you just have to really be true to the tone of the book and keep it consistent. I think. Well, Black Badge started with a flashback. It's uh, that is how I died, right? Like yeah. that's the moment, right, where we wrote how James Crowley died, and it was it took place twenty years before the actual story. And that flashback, right? Start very, very. It grabs you. Thanks, man. Thank I, I don't think it. I don't think the story works. Um, Cold as hell does not work without flashbacks either, because we need to know who James Crowley was, and it can't just be James. No, there's a, definite, there's a definite evolution there. I mean, I, that's a huge, huge transformation. And and it, it demonstrates your intimate understanding of who he is because you also intimately understand who he was. Jamie and Rhett, you wrote this book with the benefit of knowing that Roger would voice um, not only this character, but the, the whole story. A lot of times when you're writing a book, you don't have the benefit of knowing who will uh, read this for the audiobook performance. Um, when you're writing, uh, especially someone who has such a, um, a strong dialect and, and a dialect that, um, that gives us so much of the character and it gives us not only his character, but it informs the place and the time that it comes from. Um, and, and so much of that is woven directly into your, into your prose, into the dialogue of it. Sometimes you don't have the benefit of being able to write a character that, um, that strongly, um, and you have to rely on, uh, dialogue tags and, and things like that. Um, what is the difference in writing? Um, I, I guess where I'm trying to get to is, um, what do you do you ever write dialects into the and, and slang uh, into the dialogue so that it reads the way that that a, a performer performer will perform it? Uh, or do you rely on describing the dialogue outside of the dialogue? D does that make any sense yeah. at all? Um, I, I write a lot of fantasy and Rhett and I wrote a million word fantasy together. And when we had dwarves, they spoke in in text. They spoke like dwarves. Um you know, Roger actually did something tremendous with uh, Cold as Hell. And I, I remember texting him. So I got an early copy of it and I'm listening through it. I mean, I listened through that so fast and then listened to it again. Um, he did a character named Cedric uh, that we didn't give him any instruction as to who that character was outside of uh, he's a black man. That's about it. Right. Like there's a moment where he is called dark skinned. Um and Roger read him as a Yankee. Uh, he's a Pinkerton. And I remember, Roger, you remember I texted you. I'm like, that Cedric performance was absolutely phenomenal for me. Oh, thanks. I, yeah, I remembered the Pinkertons, you know, 
were I, I remembered a lot of the Pinkertons were from the East Coast and the, they yeah. were they're kind of in they were invading the literally invading the Wild West in more ways than one. It was also metaphorically as well as literally. And I wanted to make his voice very different and from from all the Western characters. This is a guy from New York, you know, he doesn't belong here, but he's taking, you know, he's he's the sign of the future, sort of, if you will. Yeah. No, and Hank, to your question, I think it it really helps to know, but especially in first person, right? Like if you're doing third person, it, it's a little more narrative reliant. I mean, me and Steve are big subtext dialogue writers anyway, where we try to let the words tell how people feel more than needing to explain it. Um, but yeah, I mean, even with my Children of Titans series, when I found out R.C. Bray was narrating, actually Steve edited the whole thing because he, he had listened to so many R.C. Bray books <laughs> so we could actually really fit it to his voice. Um, and that was just a benefit of having time before he was going to start. And so we like re-edited all, all the books. But yeah, it's tough because a lot of, I mean, me, like me, look, me and Steve are, are really lucky. We run Athon. We have enormous access to narrators and audio publishers. Yeah. Typically, when we start writing something, we know who we're gonna like. At this point, if we want this certain narrator and they're not like a celebrity, we can get them, or we'll wait until they're ready. Um, so that's going to be a lot different than a lot of these traditional published authors, where you know they're getting audio a year later, or they basically aren't in control of the decision at all. Right. So it's hard to know we're in a lucky position where we always know or we know with enough lead time to then go back and edit it for that exact person. Um, But that's not a benefit most authors are going to have, especially if they're not indie and like either producing it themselves or intimately involved in the production itself. That goes back to Roger saying sometimes he doesn't get to talk to the author. Sometimes when you're with a big publisher, you don't even know that you could talk to your narrator. Right. You get a sheet, you provide some pronunciations, and that's the end of it. They, they, they might not even want the author to talk to the narrator because then the producer doesn't know all the information getting passed back and forth. I mean, even with Athon, we have some policies with that, right? Because if we let every author have direct contact with the narrator, we don't know how often that author is going to suggest changes or suggest, you know, uh, the narrator might get overwhelmed speaking yeah. with, with an author. And we know that from experience because early on, Rhett and I didn't know the process. And uh, I got in trouble once for messaging a narrator. Uh, Audible Studios has a you don't talk to the narrator rule unless we are all CC'd in that email. And I didn't know that. I had the dude's email address and I shot him an email one day and it blew up. It became a huge major issue. And so that informed how Athon runs things. Okay, we give you a sheet, you give us this. If the narrator has questions, they ask us, we then ask you. Um, And for us, it was to protect the narrator because we know authors can get overwhelmingly excited about a performance. (laughs) Or overwhelmingly picky about every voice. And at a certain point, the narrator needs to do how perform it, how they want to perform it. So we kind of leave it up to the narrator. If they say, yeah, I'll talk to them or do a call, then then we'll do it. But otherwise, it, it, that level of connection is rough. Um, and, you know, it's it's a different case for us just because, you know, of running Athon, we have those connections. But for 
for most authors, there, there probably isn't any communication with the narrator whatsoever. Some of the audio publishers don't even ask for a pronunciation list. Like if you don't provide it, they're going to do it however they want to do it. Um, Luke Daniel, phenomenal narrator, right? He's mispronounced so many words in the buried goddess saga. <laughs> um, but like, they're not really mispronounced. They're just the way that he would have pronounced them. And so yeah. Rhett and I sort of adopted his pronunciations of things going forward. Yeah. Um, like we didn't know that ZH is supposed to sound like a J sound, right? right. Like, and that happened in, in that or, or in Titanborn. Oh, and in, in Barry. And in that, there's a character called Zaff, which is Z-H-A-F-F. And that was always his name. And then I didn't even put it in the pronunciation list because I was like, I didn't want to spell it Z-A-F-F because that looks stupid. The H makes it look cool. <laughs> R.C. Bray read it, Jaff the whole book. And I was like, all right, well, I guess he's he's Jaff now. Who knew? And then we had Zulong in the Buried Goddess Saga and Luke Daniels read it, Zulong. And so that was when we both learned Z-H is that's <laughs> what it becomes because apparently that's how it's phonetically supposed to be pronounced. So there's things that will surprise you. That's in that funny. sense, but some authors really can't take that level of change. Yeah. And, and so that's why, you know, and some narrators yeah. want to ask a million questions and some authors don't want to talk to anybody. Right. Yeah. So it, it controlling the communication does become sort of a necessity. So just, just having an established um, uh, process, it just keeps everyone out of trouble all around. Just, oh, you know, yeah, hopefully. Uh, Roger, when when you are presented with a new project, how do you choose the projects you're going to work on? And and how how long does it take you to get a feel for whether this is something that that uh, you will enjoy doing uh, or, or something that, that you can bring a certain, you know, uh, character to life? Well, um I, I, I love all challenges and, uh, you know, I do a lot of, I do a lot of nonfiction as well. I've done a lot of history books. I, um, I, I really do like to sink my teeth into, into all, lots and lots and lots of different types of books, but, uh, well, I'll look at the breakdown and, uh, more often sometimes, sometimes the offer will be a straight up offer. Other times it'll be, they'll ask me to read a couple of pages and sometimes the pages that I choose are up to me and sometimes the pages are up to them. And, uh, I study that intently, uh, before I submit. And I think with those, and I purposefully for the purpose of that, I don't look at the rest of the book. If that's the bite that they want me to deal with, then that's the bite that they get. And I and I usually make my decision from that because, uh, you know, if it's not a firm offer, it's it's not very time economical to go through the whole book when uh, you're preparing for it. So um, I usually go for the somewhere in the beginning of the book, like in the first or second chapter, I'll pick three or four pages that uh, that I feel really showcase the main character and uh, and has is a good demonstration of the author's style and then i try and put my my label on that and then it's up to them to decide whether they think it's a good match or not excellent cold as hell black badge series book one which is actually this the second edition in this um in this series is available now you can uh 
the uh, Dead Acre, the the first novella, I guess it is, uh, that was produced, is also available. We'll put links to it where you can find it easily. Um, Jamie, Rhett, Roger, thank you guys so much for joining us today. Thanks for having us. Thank you for having us. Pleasure. Can I just say, Roger, thank you for joining. This is like I'm fanboying. <laughs> oh God, my pleasure, man. My pleasure. Thanks for. Ch- I'm sorry we had to change the time. But thanks for your flexibility. That's okay. It's all good. It's all good.